where we have uh, Emmett Gardner, Daniel E. Friends, Dylan LaBella, and now Emma Boone. And the panel is going to be moderated by, again, from yesterday, Paul Rossi. Paul, come on up. You can talk about that, do a little intro. Hi, everyone. I did it. Everybody hear me okay? He's going to say something first before you move. Uh, many of you know my story as a private school math teacher who went public about the crippling effects of imposing ideological conformity on students in my school. People uh, have admired what I did, and I've been called brave for speaking out. But the worst of my difficulties lasted only two or three months. At the beginning of this year, when I left my position, I was free. I was lucky because it was over. The students I'm proud to introduce tonight are exemplars of a different kind of bravery, a much deeper and more lasting kind. They are brave not just for being here today, but for living and learning every day in the open as free thinkers and as free expressors in schools where adult teachers and administrators, as well as their fellow students, are imposing ideological beliefs as knowledge. These students may be struggling, but they are finding ways to grow and thrive in these places where their opinions and thoughts are routinely misrepresented as ignorant and, Im and immoral. I call that really brave. To any adults watching at home who are contemplating going public and voicing your concerns for your children, who are hesitant about the consequences for yourself and them, I hope these three children will serve as an example for you. Today, I'm very proud to share a stage with Daniel LeFrez, Dylan LaBella, Emmett Gardner, and Emma Boone. We'll start with a short presentation from Emmett about his growing new organization, Students Unite, and then we'll have a self-moderated discussion among these four inspiring students. Thank you, Paul. My name is Emmett Gardner, uh, and I'm currently a senior in high school, in, in a high school just outside of Boston. So to me, there's a serious uh, discourse crisis in our schools. Educational institutions are starting to see free discourse not as the most sacred thing in a free society, but as an avenue for students to learn the wrong thing. A few years ago, I inherited my high school's debate club. Prior to my tenure as president, the debate club represented traditional high school debate, which included competitions, trophies, and this elitist culture that defines the sport of debate. Immediately, I recognized this as a problem. When status and awards are prioritized, not only does it leave most high schoolers uninterested in the process of debate, it wildly misrepresents the true meaning of debate in a free society, a process in which ideas are openly exchanged, allocated proper representation, and systematically challenged in order to equip participants with a more complete understanding of the issue itself and more effectively solve our problems. The prevalence of traditional high school debate dissociating the activity from intellectual discussion severely obstructs students' conception of the purpose of debate in our civilization. 
So with this club, I began to think, what does the student body need most? And I came to the conclusion that John Stuart Mill was right. If intellectual development is of priority, the student body needs an environment open and available to all students where they can engage with all perspectives of an issue and feel as though their voice is heard and ideas respected. So we created the first discourse club based on the principles of open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and balanced discourse at my high school. This is a space where productive disagreement is not only tolerated, but welcome, encouraged, and needed for the club to operate properly, representing something entirely new to many students. Many of our members were surprised to feel ideologically welcome in a space in their own school, something they never experienced before. With this new cause, we were able to attract the exact demographic of student that needed our space most. Students who felt as though their intellectual integrity was being systematically undermined every day by officials who forced them to repeat ideas they did not understand or adhere to finally found a home in school. Even students who shared the views of their teachers and adhered to the prevailing notion knew the homogenous nature of education was seriously harming our academic integrity. But most importantly, students who were previously unable to cooperate due to ideological differences formed prosperous and enduring friendships. The broad diversity of students that joined suggests, uh, suggests students need an outlet, divorced from the regular in-class structure in which they can feel their voices heard and ideas respected. But by virtue of granting some ideas representation, we experienced considerable pushback from the administration of our school. On numerous occasions, they attempted to diminish the importance of our cause, alter definitions to diminish our intent, and even attempt to block our influence to certain groups of students. Throughout all my dealings with the school in regards to this club, it has been clear that open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and balanced discourse is not of sufficient priority. So in order to spread our discourse environments and our idea, we partnered with the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education to launch a network of discourse clubs in high schools across the nation. Yet even with the sponsorship of such a reputable organization, we found administrations of many schools entirely unreceptive and dismissive of our basic discourse principles. The fact that educational institutions do not actively tolerate and encourage an environment where, where debate can flourish suggests, one, the concept of education is lost, and two, we need a new tactic. So I partnered with Parents Unite to launch Students Unite, a network of students who are trained to advocate for open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and balanced discourse in K through 12 education. If anything, we help kids disagree with their teachers and friends. In the end, having a network and support structure available to students is the most important resource they can be granted. This school takeover will continue to thrive with the absence of student pushback and normalized dissent. Students Unite is that student's dissent organization. Thank you. So first we wanted to go through a few examples from the classroom 
first dissect them, and then we talk about, we'll talk about the experiences that students have to face when they see these slides and uh, when these teachers teach this ideology to them. And so let's move on to the next slide. I'm like, yeah, sorry. Oh, oops. That's fine. Oh, there we go. So in this first slide, uh, I actually got this from a classmate of mine. Uh, this is uh, probably one of the most, I would say, clear examples out of the many uh, red flags that I've seen scrolling through his Google Classroom. Uh, and, and this one, uh, is, uh, it talks about anti-racism and anti-racist an anti practice and how they must adopt it. Before we talk about how the students react to this, which is, I guess, very, it's essential for us to know what anti-racism means. And from my research, from what I've uh, read, I realize that anti-racism means anti-Western. Anti-Western being anti-Western, uh, being anti or against Western values, I would say. Especially the Protestant work ethic, the nuclear uh, family, and everything that makes us American and makes us Westerners, right? And you see this uh, when you read this slide. It says, when I say reading is an anti-racist practice, I mean the act of reading becomes itself an inquiry into the reader's own, own language habits and the larger dominant structural forces, keep that in mind, that appeals to the postmodern sort of uh, underpinnings of critical race theory and influences outside the reader one's usually a product of white supremacy and white racial dominance. And so, Dylan, when you look at this slide, what does it mean to you and what, when students encounter anti-racism, how do they react to that? Uh, well, I think, uh, firstly, uh, I just want to say, Daniel, uh, we go to the same school. And in, in one of the classes, we're in the, we're in the Law and Society major. And in, in one of the classes, uh, Legal Ethics, we, we talk about very sensitive issues, you know, regarding race, and we, we study the philosophy behind it, and, and it, it is a very tough subject to talk about. Um, but when I look at this, I just, I think of that class because every single person, before they raise their hand and speak, they have to say, I am a white, even though I'm a white male, you know, cisgender person, and, and then they state their beliefs. They have to preface their statement, uh, you know, with, with those words to, to avoid any, any backlash from uh, from, from other students. So these teachings, they're teaching kids to hate themselves and who they are, and I, I think that's really a destructive way uh, to run a classroom, a school, a school district, and then eventually a country. Do you see something similar in your school? I do, I do. Um, you know, it, it's really this, this pervasive environment that um, it, it's bullying, basically. The, these are groups of people that bully other people uh, into staying quiet and, and their voice is the loudest in the classroom. Of course, I mean, what we think is, or at least I think, they're a minority, but they're the loudest and, uh, you know, people kind of just have to go along or their grades will be uh, punished and maybe they'll lose friends and status and things like that. Yeah, I would definitely say that um, a lot of my classmates, I do go to Brooklyn Tech in New York City and so, as you would imagine, there aren't a lot of conservative or right-leaning uh, students. But when you approach them, and I, I usually do this uh, exercise with my fellow classmates, and I would say, does this sound right to you? And they would say, 
no, not really, or you know, something to that effect. And that's because they're afraid. When you come to them and ask them, does it sound right to you? It's personal, right? You're asking for their opinions, especially if you open up to them and they know that they can trust you. And as you know, uh, in the past few days or in the past few weeks, I would say many students have come up to me personally, and I, I could say they trust me uh, with their true opinions, and they would say, no, that doesn't sound right, Daniel. That doesn't. And so, like Emmett said, it, it really is bullying. Uh, when, you, when I have to hear in economics class, my fellow classmates having to have a disclaimer, well, I don't really agree with these views, you know? I'm not like a conservative myself, but here's what a conservative would say in this, in, uh, this, this is the conservative response to this certain question. Uh, and if, if you are really to dive deep and you have to really swim with these ideas and you're sort of, the students are not even taking, dipping their toe because of the backlash that they fear they might face. Uh, absolutely, you know Daniel's 100% right. I'm, I'm very vocal about my political beliefs. Obviously, that's that's why I'm here uh, on this wonderful panel. Uh, and and I've had I've had kids come up to me, classmates come up to me af after when you know after a debate where I've engaged uh, with with not only uh, the other students but but even the teacher in certain classes. And I've had them come up to me and say, Hey, thank you so much for speaking out. Uh, I, I would too. It's just I'm afraid of what they're going to do to my grade, what the other kids are going to do to me. You know, walking home from school, and I don't think that any any kid should should be afraid walking home from school because they're 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 uh, they're not looking forward to to kids, uh, you know, harassing them, physically intimidating them. It's it's no way to live. Right, exactly. And it, it's important to recognize that the bullies are the minority, and and there's most ki most kids. Um, are, you know, they just don't want anything to do with that, so they're complicit in um, the techniques that they use to silence them, and they're fine with it. Uh, but it's almost like um, these minds that need to be unlocked. So with my team at Students Unite, we, we go to these students and we, we start to expose them to these other ideas, and they're fascinated that such, such you know, ideas that they thought would be, um, you know, associated with all the undesirables are represented in such an attractive and academic uh, manner. And it, it's almost like they had never been exposed to that sort of thing. So sometimes w with us, we have to play devil's advocate in um, classrooms just because we can't deal with the homogenous nature of um, the, uh, the curriculum. Yeah, I, I, I want to, there's a few uh, good things I want to pick out there uh, before we go to Emma a bit. And the first is unlocked minds, you know. Uh, usually the, the way the situation in classrooms uh, is, is framed as is, oh, students are getting brainwashed. Like, you know, they're just going and, and it's almost like they're like hypnotized. Oh, I will believe this. I will believe that. Not really. Uh, at least at Brooklyn Tech, when we have debates, LAS students are very passionate about their positions, right? We have, uh, I remember my favorite example to go, uh, my favorite example to use is when uh, I had a socialist in my class and just a, a liberal in my class debate about tariffs, you know, whether uh, the tariffs Trump imposed were uh, a valid policy decision. And so these students aren't, it's not as if these students are getting brainwashed, but they aren't seeing the other side. Uh, and because the other side is actively being uh, 
called demonic, evil, and so they won't even engage with that because that's evil to them, but they'll happily engage with the ideas that they're allowed to talk about. And so that's why I, I, like, I like that unlocked mind sort of point. And yeah, the devil, devil's advocate point is something, I, I find myself being a devil's advocate all the time, you know, especially during the pandemic when we had uh, online classes, I find myself uh, saying, well, one would say this, you know, one would say that, right? And what I found is that these students who were, are, you know, liberal in orientation, will say, wait, that is a good point. You know, that is a good point. I actually agree with Daniel on this point and that point because they're dissociating themselves from the arguments. And when they are able to dissociate themselves from the arguments, they dissociate themselves from the repercussions of saying something evil. And so Emma, I, I wanted to get to you a bit because you actually have a particular uh, situation where you're homeschooled. So you, you've left public schools. Can you tell us why that is? Does that have to do anything with um, the indoctrination we're seeing in classrooms right now? It mostly just has to do with the inferior education itself. I got out before a lot of the CRT and everything kind of went into the school, and I left because I, the teachers weren't teaching us what we needed to learn to pass the tests. Interesting. So the ina inadequacy of schools, and I, I can go on a whole rant uh, with that. I'm just lucky. <laughs> uh, well, no, seriously. I mean, it, the fact that you would have to go to a specialized high school to have a quiet classroom to actually do your work is, it, I can never figure that out, all right? If you go to any other public high school in New York City, uh, students are throwing a fit, teachers can't teach, and it's a problem. If the only real education is at specialized high schools, then what is New York City doing? And New York is supposed to be the, the best state uh, with education, it sucks. Um, <laughs> So uh, I have another slide here. I actually got this from my English class last year in junior, uh, junior year. And we had to dissect uh, the Great Gatsby. If you look at the slide on top, it says racism in the Great Gatsby. We actually had to use critical race theory to dissect uh, certain things in the Great Gatsby. Uh, it, was, it was a very interesting use of critical race theory because usually critical race theory is implanted embedded in the lesson itself. Uh, but in this case, in order to get your point, you had to use uh, critical race theory, Marxist theory, and uh, post-structuralism uh, uh, to get the analyzation point, which I found interesting. Still a problem, but it was interesting to me. Um, and so uh, if you look at the slide on the bottom, there's a uh, pyramid. I think you guys are familiar with this pyramid. I, I don't think this is a secret about the overt racism on the top and the covert racism on the bottom. Uh, I have a lot to say about that, but Emmett, when, when you look at the slide, what do you see? Well, I see something that can be applied to any subject in schools, and they really make an effort to integrate this into as many programs as possible. Um, you know, I kind of, you know, I've been through middle school, high school, before, you know, all this stuff started to become an issue. So I learned math and science traditionally, but um, I'm worried that um, this kind of stuff will not end in English class or history class, which it shouldn't be in there in the first place, but uh, it'll start to permeate math and science. And we're starting to see more efforts to, to kind of teach to these prepackaged conclusions. And, and that's really, what it is, there's not really an emphasis, and I think we had other speakers talk about this yesterday, 
on excellence. There's not an emphasis on excellence. There's an emphasis on um, the orthodoxy and uh, you know, ridding the society of its racist uh, you know, underpinnings. I want to dissect the pyramid a bit more. If you look at the covert racism section, and I'm pretty sure some of you have seen this slide, uh, colorblindness is one of the things inside the covert racism section of the pyramid, uh, which goes to the, what's the, the famous line? Uh, it's not enough to be not racist, you have to be anti-racist. Uh, and um, that just points to uh, the no truth but power sort of contention that uh, postmodern uh, theories like critical race theory makes, you know? Uh, if it's either your side or the other side, you know, there's only a black way of knowing and a white way of knowing, no human way of knowing, uh, the way of knowing that we know, studying and uh, understanding concepts, maybe listening to podcasts, reading books. Uh, no, blacks aren't, uh, apparently they can't analyze like white people, uh, yeah. which I find fascinating. But uh, it, that points, the fact that, and I, I just, I, I want to talk about um, sort of the, the, the classroom sort of culture, or the, the classrooms, the way my classmates reacted when they seen this slide. And of course, there were a few students who were uh, happy to respond to what they seen in a pyramid. But I found that when we're dealing with slides like these, and we also had a, a, a queer theory sort of dissection of The Great Gatsby as well. Uh, the students were real silent on that one, I'll say that. Uh, but they, students were, are silent. They don't want to speak up and they don't want to say anything because it, it's obviously, why would, a lot of students, I would say are classical liberals in my school, uh, and, and when they see colorblindness and covert racism, does that mean they're racist? Uh, is, is a hard thing to, to swallow, especially when this is, I think this was due now. Like, it, right, we didn't even get into the main portion of, of this lesson, and so, uh, yeah. Dylan, anything to add? I just think, I mean, I mean, just so many thoughts went, went, you know, go through my mind when I see this. Uh, I mean, the fact that colorblindness is, is, is racism. I, I've been raised to treat everyone, you know, the same way, equally. We're, you know, we're all, uh, we're all created equal, as our, as our, as our founding father said. Uh, and uh, it's, it's really a shame that it's, it's become this uh, prevalent in, in public schooling. Can I, can I ask a question? Of you guys? Yeah. Um, you're doing a fantastic job in this stuff. Um, what... Uh, did they offer any scholarship to back up this pyramid? Did they suggest that there was any research that was behind it? Um, do they do they just present it as if it's you know a belief that's true? Oh yeah, yeah. They yeah. just they just place it in there. There's yeah. no yeah. Uh, need to justify what they were saying because um, of course their justification is you're racist. Uh, so uh, yeah. there was no need to, to to prove it. No no need for scholarship. No. But they use people like Candy and okay. uh, Coates. People. Okay. So so no you know. Meta analysis, no studies, no anything. Okay. Nothing. Yeah. Okay. Um, what do you think? Just to pursue this, what? How do you? If you were a student and you wanted to challenge the premise of the assignment, what do you think would happen? What would happen if that if that was tried? How would how would a teacher react if you if you tried to do that? Depends on the teacher. Okay. Some of them are militant, and you know, um, there's no potential for any sort of pushback or any sort of free speech in those classes. But sometimes this is prescribed by the administration and all these teachers, they have to do it unless uh, if they want to you know, stay employed. So um, with, with that, they're almost secretly encouraging people to, to like push back against this because to them, it, it's, it's going against their nature to, 
to teach ignorance and hatred and uh, everything that's embedded into something like this? Uh, yeah, I mean, it 100% it uh, depends on the teacher. Um, I, I myself, uh, w when I get these assignments, uh, I, I'm even hesitant to speak out uh, because, uh, you know, when, when, you throw, when you throw words, I think a speaker yesterday touched on it, like anti-racist. When you go against anti-racism, you know, boom, you're a racist. That's, that's, that's what the rebuttal is. So uh, if, if someone were to try and speak out, uh, my advice would be just, just be careful of, of what you say. Um, you, you always have to try and, and be as respectful as possible. Uh, so, so pe when people, if if it does go, you know, further than the classroom, if uh, you know a, an assistant principal gets a hold of, of anything, um, so they, they can't nail you in in the tr in the transcript recount. So just be very respectful about what you're saying and uh, how you present uh, your your side of the argument. Emma. Oh wait, you don't have if teachers you, I mean, in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you well, got my teacher would probably strongly encourage me to challenge this if I ever saw it. <laughs> 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 well, so, so a lot of the talk um, of you know indoctrination, we usually is in the classroom setting, but there's a whole world outside the classroom that the students have to face, and uh, part of that world is our most of that world is the online, is online on Instagram and whatnot. And so, Dylan, can you be? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, Daniel kind of spoiled it, but uh, <laughs> we're gonna go uh, now something, you know, something that impacts our everyday lives um, for, for the vast majority of us, and that is social media. You know, as you can see, we got the graphic here. Um, but so, yeah, social media uh, has been huge. Let me, let me grab my notes. Uh, so social media has been such a huge part of almost every teenager's life since you know the mid 2000s. It's it's you know we we've grown so accustomed to our to our cell phone that it, it you know we we can't leave home without it. And uh, and so, what's my experience dealing with the orthodoxy online? Uh, this is a, a huge question, something that I've faced uh, throughout my time uh, as a high school student, even as a middle school student. I was politically um, vocal. And uh, I, was, I was going to include, you know, screenshots of, of me being called all these names, but I, I thought, you know, why include such, you know, viciousness? I, I said, I, I don't want that in my slides. But, you know, so I've, I've had such an experience dealing with, uh, you know, I've been called every name in the book. I mean, it's, it's just, I don't even, I don't care at this point. There's, there's no basis um, to, to, to these people. They're just, they're calling me a racist just to call me a racist. So I just, I roll my eyes and, and I... Uh, I go along with it, uh, and but it where, where the line has to be drawn is when it becomes when it goes from you know from the online uh, you know oh you're racist to to the physical intimidation you know I, I've been sent messages watch your back Dylan you know you know I'm gonna get you today and 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 that's just not right I mean I, I've had to go to school living you know kind of fearful um, to be quite honest with you that you know, is today the day I'm in the bathroom and someone, you know, shoves me, shoves me from behind and, and starts attacking me. And, and that's, that's really, uh, that's no way, no way to go to school, um, to, be, uh, to, be, to be quite frank. Uh, and is, is it cyberbullying? Uh, you know, Google's dictionary defines cyberbullying as the use of electronic communication to bully or intimidate a person. And, and I mean, really, it, that hit the nail on the head. This is cyberbullying. Uh, so parents, if, if, you, if, you, if your kid has come to you, you know, saying, mom, you know, th this, uh, 
th this kid at school, he's sending me all the, he or she is sending me all of these mean, you know, and, and rude, uh, you know, these rude texts, and I feel, I feel threatened, I feel, I feel harassed. It, it, it's, it's, it's your duty to, to say, okay, thank you so much for, for coming to see me. And, and, and go, go to, to the, to the uh, assistant principal, e even the principal, and say, you know, my kid is being bullied. And I, I feel like that's something that's, that's not being stressed enough, because uh, the people, chances are that the people that are sending you all these messages think that they're doing it in, in, the, name of, in, in the name of good. You know, they're, they're being anti-racist, they're standing up for, for qu what's quote-unquote right. And, and in, in this case, it couldn't be further from the truth. It, it's just, it's bullying, and end of story. So, so yeah. Uh, and is it cancel culture? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've been canceled. I, I've lost track of all the times that I've, I've been quote unquote canceled. I, I mean, people have screenshotted uh, my, my political posts and it's gotten so bad where, uh, so I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a teenager. So the vast majority of, of my social media is on Instagram and I've had to transition from Instagram to Facebook because there aren't kids my age on Facebook. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I, I can actually have what I feel are, are uh, more intellectual conversations, and they just so happen to be with, with family or, or my father's friends. Uh, there's my father sitting right there. So. Thank you, Dad. Um, <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, so like I said, how should a student deal with it? The, the, only, way, the only way to deal with something is to... In, in this case, tell a trusted adult, whether it's, whether it's a teacher, um, you know, other family member, parent, whatever. So, um, you have to tell your kid that they, they have to speak to someone about it because dealing with this, it can be really negative for your self-esteem and, and, your, and your mental health. Uh, so uh, it, it's, it's so, so important that, that, they, that they just speak up because there, there are a million people that feel the same exact way as them. Thank you very much. Hi guys. Uh, if you haven't, if you still don't know my name, my name is Daniel E. Friends. I'm 17 years old and I go to Brooklyn Technical High School. Uh, at first, I was going to do a generic speech about speaking up. Uh, you know, the New York City subway, if you see something, say something sort of thing. Uh, but I decided to change it up a bit, especially yesterday after I heard everybody speak. First, let's start off with uh, story time. Uh, if you don't know, I work at Panera. Uh, nice job. Uh, I just d wash the dishes, clean the bathrooms and whatnot. And during the summer, we closed at 7 p.m. And around 6.30, I would go down, get the dishes, and then again at 6.55. Uh, and this time when I came down, 6.55, uh, my coworker, uh, he let out a, a huge grunt. <clears throat> and I'm like, what's wrong, Kenny? And he pointed to the screen where people would make orders, and I seen uh, an order for a small mac and cheese. And please don't do this. Do not order five minutes before a restaurant closed for a small mac and cheese. <laughs> uh, don't, just don't do it. It's, it's frustrating. Uh, and so, you know, we, we had jokes about it. It's funny, of course, but when I walked home that night, I thought, you know, whether you think we've became, uh, we've became lazier or busier, trust me, I'm going somewhere with this, by the way, whether, whether we've, we became 
a lazier society or a busier society, we have adopted a culture of delegation, right? Delegating your tasks to something else. Uh, delegation is a fancy word. It makes you seem like a businessman. Oh, I gotta delegate my taxes to uh, somebody else. Uh, but the flip side of delegation is abdicating responsibility, right? And you don't need to be busy to give somebody else a responsibility that you should be taking on. For example, in the morning, I don't know if you guys have this, but in New York City, we have corner stores, bodegas, delis, whatever you call it. I call it a corner store. And, you know, I would uh, call up the corner store and say, hey, can you make me a sandwich, right? Because I'm a I already miss economics class, so I, I got to get her up and get to school. Um, we, we have, we, we delegate everything, a lot of things, and very, very minute things as well. Uh, when I'm typing up a Word document, uh, I realize I don't need to spell certain words because Word is going to fix it for me. And so, you know, I'll just type it in wrong and then that's delegating a responsibility of typing correctly, spelling correctly, to Word. Uh, and, you know, I, I know we don't mean to do it, but we've sort of delegated the task of raising our children to teachers. And it happened to be that those teachers do not have those students' best interests in mind. Um, we've realized that these teachers are ideologues. And when your children are supposed to be the end, they're supposed to be teaching your children so they can become productive members of society, they are not a means to an end. And that end is not productive members, it is the ideologues whatever they believe in, whatever end goal that they want, and we know what they want is revolution. And you can't have revolution with productive members of society. You can only have revolution with resentful members of society. And so the solution is to spend more time with your kids. Why? Well, because most of the day, they're spending time with those teachers, those ideologues, right? And they're teaching your children they're teaching your children that the only hope of becoming a hero in their right and their story is playing along with their game, whether it be to denounce your racism if you're a white child or for you to raise hell if you're a black child because nobody will listen to you, nobody speaks the way you do. There's only a black way of speaking, a black way of knowing, all right? a black way of communicating with your white peers. And so spend more time with your children and give them actual values. Teach them that you can speak to anybody because everybody has access to the logos, right? Everybody has the ability to reason, to use their rational ability to come to proper conclusions. Teach your child that they're not alone. A lot of children, a lot of classmates, they came up to me because they realized they are not alone. That's the biggest thing, that's the biggest issue. Every single child, they think that they have these different views and they think that they're the only ones who think it because when they go on social media, unfortunately, social media has become an erroneous sort of uh, a facade of what real life is. And so when they go on social media, they think that what the, the political opinions online represents the classroom. It does not. And while people are more susceptible or more likely to be canceled online, as in Dylan's case, it's not as easy to call somebody a bigot face-to-face. -face. So I said, 
you should spend more time with your children and give them true values. Tell them that they're special no matter what, all right? Because this ideology, and first, social media has sort of replaced this idea that we are uh, made in the image of God with uh, your, your value is only determined by the amount of likes and comments that you get on your posts. And so children were already in a bad place before this ideology swept through the schools. And now they're being told that their value uh, is zero because you lose if you're a white child and you also lose if you're a black child. Tell them that they're special no matter what. Bring them to your jobs, right? Because school is, I would say after the summer, I had a very busy summer and a successful one, thank God. Now I'm in school and I'm, I'm doing icebreakers when I could be answering emails, when I, be, when I could be going to meetings. Bring your child to your work, bring them to your jobs because they will learn a lot more when they see the person they admire most in real, in real life, working hard. And they'll say, I seen mom worked hard today. I seen dad worked hard today. I should do that as well. Instead of sitting in the classroom, uh, being told to be silent. They're being told to be silent, shut up and listen to the teacher even before we had this ideology sweep through the nation, right? Why is this important? Well, in order to have a free society, we have to have strong communities. And if your child is being taught to hate you because you believe in colorblindness, and the teachers are telling them that colorblindness is racist as well, then they'll start to hate you. And free societies are built on families. See here, there's a lot, it's like a stereotypical conservative talking point, but in Democracy in America by Alexei de Tocqueville, he talks about how in free societies, we're able to organize. We had bowling leagues, we had churches, and we had families. If you needed help, you would go to your mother, your brother. What this is doing is dividing all of us. This is important because we need moral citizens. The, ideolo the ideology that our students are facing gives them a completely different moral worldview that tells them to hate everybody, to hate themselves, because they're sinners in some way. We need communicative citizens, citizens who can communicate with each other. Right? Communication is very important because there are some things we frankly cannot do, but my friend can do it. And if he cannot communicate because one person is white and the other person is black, then we are destroying America, essentially, and our uh, capacity to do great things. We are growing up in a unique time. So it's more important than ever to teach your child the values, American values, that we adore and that we preserve every generation. My classmates would appreciate that. And please, for the love of God, get off her couch and make your own mac and cheese. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. That's it. Oh, and uh, we saved some time for the parents to ask some questions. So take it away. I didn't have a cue, but here I am. I have time for questions. We have one here in the front. Yes, I have a question. Um, um, this, is, this is for all of you, but I also do want to hear from like my own child on this. Do you think the, do you think 
the lowering of academic standards is connected to the students' struggle with pushing back. Do you think it's harder when you've, you know, not necessarily had rigor in your early grades and so forth, that when you get face to face with these kind of ideas, it's a bigger struggle? Emily, you want to go first? Okay. Um, I think because kids haven't always been t taught to think the way that think through what you're learning instead of read the material, answer the question, read the material, answer the question. They don't really know that the new material that's coming in might not be based on fact, so it's going to be harder to move forward from that because that later assignments might be based on something you didn't get to learn because they were teaching stuff that wasn't actually part of what we need to learn. No, absolutely. Um, I agree 100%. I mean, from, from a very young age, I've fortunately been taught, you know, uh, how to research um, and how to corroborate sources to, to make sure that I'm getting accurate information. And so if we're not doing that, then when kids are being fed, you know, this, this nonsense, uh, they're, they're going to be more inclined to believe it. Yeah, definitely. I would say, I mean, that's one of the biggest issues that I believe. Uh, if every student was taught Western philosophy, every student was taught the values that we uh, cherish, then when they uh, have this ideology whose, which uh, its moral code is basically oppositional to Western society, right? It exists in opposition to Western society. So if students actually learned the values that we cherish, then a huge red flag will be going off in every single student's uh, minds. Like, why am I being taught this? This is completely opposite of what my parents taught me, of what I've learned up until now. And I'm, I've been fortunate to, I mean, I have classmates who, ha like, they have that red flags going off in their minds because for at least my graduating class, we grew up in a time where we actually learned those values, right? What's going on with, the, with um, critical race theory, wokeism, whatever you may call it, happened in K-12 in the past few years. It's very recent. Universities is a different story, but uh, I would say ideologues took a bet that uh, parents won't be paying attention for, uh, when it comes to K-12 education either. Uh, I would say they made the right, right bet at the wrong time of the pandemic and everybody uh, shoulder surfing their children, but again, yeah, if everybody learned what makes the West unique, then it, there will be no, I mean, the ideology will stop there. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not completely convinced because the people that are grading your children are the people that are pushing the ideology, right? So you're, they're grading them on, based on how well they regurgitate the ideology back to them, mm -hmm. objectively. I think there is a lowering academic standard because they have to fit everything into this uh, you know, social justice, critical race theory mindset, but I don't think there's a connection. We're going to go to uh, Wilford Riley. Oh, Eric. No, Eric or Will. No, it's all right. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> you can go. There's <laughs> more neglect of Eric. <laughs> Terrible what we see. So one question, as someone who myself went to uh, an urban inner city school, I see a lot of you guys uh, kind of describing, very, I mean, when you describe things like potentially being bullied in school, or um, you, know, you want more intense coursework, although it's surprising to hear that from high school students. But there, there seems to be a real lack of interest in courses about sort of Marxist bisexuality and so on. 
the idea is that you should be able to go to the classroom and study without people disrupting it. You should be able to learn material that will be useful in the working world going forward. So I guess my question for the students on the panel is really very simple at root. What do you, what do you think would make a good school? What are, what are the things you'd look for at, as high school students in a high school? What, sh what should it provide so that it doesn't suck? Re really quickly, I want to get a couple more questions in. So if a couple, all of you don't respond, and we can, you can take turns. You take these, this question, take the next one, yeah. and make the questions a little bit shorter. Go. Who wants to take? Uh, I'll take this one. I mean, okay, go ahead. I'm, I'm the one who, who really mentioned, you know, being being harassed. Uh, so I, I guess in, in an ideal school, we'd have uh, rigorous coursework, uh, you know. So and and we would be learning uh, stuff that we can we can actually use in 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 the real world. I know the vast majority of my classmates do not know the difference between a stock and a bond and I think that's going to be way more important than what is, you know, overt racism. Um, and th that's that's I'm sure many of you share that uh, that same belief. So, uh, yeah, in an in an ideal school, I, I would be able to take as many classes as, as I want and I would have unlimited extracurricular activities. Eric. Um, I'm going to stand for this one because <laughs> I can't The people at home can't see you, but go ahead. Um, well, it's for me, really. Okay. Um, who brought up the Asal Inoue quote? You did? Where'd yeah. you get that from? Uh, I got that from my classmate's uh, slide deck, one of his uh, teacher's slide deck from last year. Asal Inoue is a rhetorician. He is a leader in my field. Yeah. I'm here because of him. He did a keynote address in which he said that all white professors were inherently a problem and that all students of color were being, quote unquote, suffocated by whiteness. I responded on a listserv saying, is this really the best way to go about solving racism? And the vitriol that I got from several people in the field, it is mind blowing for a white person to call a black person a white supremacist. That was, that broke my brain. <laughs> and the fact that it's happening in high schools now, Right, he already took over the field. It's happening in high schools now. I just want to point out how deep this is going and how much we need to come together and fight this. Not just higher ed, not just K through 12, both. Right? And I'm glad you brought that up and keep bringing it up. We have to be megaphones about this. Thank you. We have time for one more question. One more question. Uh, hello. Um, my name's Sam. I actually also went to Brooklyn Tech, oh, which really? was a, a pretty, pretty funny coincidence. I'm not there now. Uh, but when I was there, um, me and a few of my friends started a club called Difficult Discussions, which was about, it was a free speech club, very inspired by Zachary Wood, uh, who was at Williams. And it was talking about, you know, politically controversial issues in an open way. We would present like a PowerPoint, given the facts uh, in as unbiased a manner as we could be. So my question um, to you is, what short-term solutions um, do you see? You know, do you see in your future? You know, just in your four years. I well, can, would, I, I can address that. You did the last one. Go ahead, let him say something. Okay. Because yeah. I was doing the discourse club. So. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> no, I think the the short-term viable solution is to do exactly what you are doing and what uh, my group does, which is. Um, set up clubs, set up environments, organizations in the school, uh, and just start attracting kids to join and, and uh, start being exposed to all these perspectives because it's, it's enlightening for them. I'll, yeah, say, go ahead. Go, yeah, I'll go ahead. say this quickly. 
Um, even if you're not interested in creating a because I, I get that can be intimidating for some, just have conversations with your students, uh, with your fellow classmates if you're a student listening to this, because I guarantee you they're going to agree with you because everybody's scared. You know, uh, the other day, and I'll make this anecdote quick, the other day I was in economics class and, um, uh, and we were talking about we have to review the different economic systems and why uh, Marxism didn't work and whatnot. And I had these two people in my group, uh, these two uh, girls, and they had like dyed hair. Uh, one red, one green, and I'm just like, yeah, this is gonna be fun. Uh, uh, and uh, turns out, turns out, they actually do not like the far left, which is really interesting. You know, they, they complained about how you know everybody's just so di like divisive these days, and how uh, I mean, literally, I'm quoting one of my friends right now. She said, uh, "The left is literally brain damaging, right?" Which uh, I, I found I found hilarious. Uh, and they were talking about, and you know, they were making jokes, and they were talking about how you know everybody thinks that we're f like super far left because of our hair and stuff like that. And so, have conversations with your classmates. I guarantee you, uh, if you approach them in an open way, like, and you just preface what you're going to ask them with, "Don't worry, I won't say anything," or "Don't worry," like, uh, you could talk to me. They'll talk to you. Wow. Well, Emma, great. Dylan, Daniel, Emmett, thank you a lot, and Paul Rossi, thank you very much.